from KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado, in the United States. This is program number 33 of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. When blind people go places, we don't experience things like our sighted friends. We don't see beautiful mountains or romantic sunsets. The goal of this program is to identify or even create experiences that are more meaningful or just more fun for us and for our sighted traveling companions. Frequently, as people lose their sight, they become more and more isolated. The tactile traveler hopes to empower people not only to go literally around the world, but around the block to new adventures in their lives. Line ranges from people whose contact lenses and glasses no longer allow them to lead a normal life, to people like me who are totally blind, to sighted parents who have a blind child, to blind parents who have sighted children, and blind parents with blind children, and people of all ages, interests, and physical abilities. On today's program, lost person behavior, and what to do if you're blind and lost. Getting on the back seat of a tandem bike. Robert J. Kester, PhD, is the ultimate expert on how people are likely to behave when they get lost. There is a sequence of patterns that a lost person will experience and you have actually several different groups or subject categories all of which will become lost and experience being lost in different ways if we start with a lost hiker they probably know where they were when they started they start hiking and they make an error at what's known as a decision point and obviously if they recognized their error they would simply backtrack and there would be no search but at that error the the terrain or the land guided them into thinking that perhaps they were still going uh, the wrong way at some point there'll be a disconnect usually at a subconscious level between where i should be and what i'm actually seeing and this will typically manifest as just increased anxiety. Then they'll start paying attention, but usually cognitive biases uh, leads them to thinking, well, if I just go a little bit further, or I'm sure this will all work out, or somebody else must have made a mistake on the map, Eventually, they they reach the, the conclusion that they are lost. And at that point, they experience a, a fight, flight, or freeze um, experience where there'll be a flood of, um, of emotions. Uh, they won't behave necessarily in the most rational uh, of ways. They'll make their decisions just basically of what they can see versus sometimes seeing a larger picture, and then the lost person will typically choose from 
one of several different uh, ways of kind of getting themselves unlocked. Some people will go uphill with the thought, maybe I'll see something, maybe I'll get a cell phone signal. Of course, they may just wind up being at the top of the mountain and it's no help. Some go downhill. It's like, I'm sure downhill will lead to something. And it may lead to civilization, or it may lead to a swamp, or it may lead to a dry wash, or it just may lead to a, a cliff that you just can't go down any further. Some people will go neither up nor down and, and contour around the, the side of a mountain in the hopes that will eventually lead them uh, to something. Other people will just say, well, if I can go a straight line long enough, that's sure to lead me somewhere. Of course, not everybody can walk a straight line uh, in the woods. A lot of people have a tendency uh, to circle. And in some places in, in the country, even walking a straight line, it's going to be a long, long time until uh, you get some someplace. Uh, another real common thing is, well, I, I found this, this linear feature, a uh, linear feature being a road or a trail or a pipeline or a stream. And it's like, if I follow this long enough, it's sure to bring me someplace. Some people will backtrack, which is actually a, a fairly effective strategy. It's like, well, I knew where I was a while back ago. Why don't I just go back to the last place where I clearly knew where I was? And kind of the, the recommended practice is to just stay put. Uh, ho however, if you're staying put, then it, you sure hope that you let somebody know where you sort of was going and when you hoped to be back so somebody can call search and rescue uh, for you and a search can launch. So those are some of the, the basic strategies and the sequence events that people use. By the category the last person fits into and the climate and terrain where they're lost. For example, people who have dementia and wander off from their home are likely to go in a straight line. If they leave through the back door, they're likely to go straight until they hit an obstacle, like bushes, shrubs, a building, or a fence. If they go out the front door, they're likely to go up or down the street until it ends, even when that's many blocks away. And they probably don't think that they're lost when toddlers age one to three disappear in the backyard. The high probability is that they are probably in the house or within 150 yards of where they were last seen, probably hiding or sleeping in a building, a tank, or something else that they can crawl into. Dr. Kessler describes how lost people are likely to behave from hunters, hikers, and horseback riders to people who are developmentally disabled to lost swimmers and boaters to escaping criminals to people who are running away to commit suicide. But who he hasn't studied are blind people who are lost. Uh, not my usual uh, area of expertise, but I would say what I recommend to everyone is while sometimes it's nice to hike by yourself, 
far more people get lost who are hiking by themselves, and we see a significantly higher uh, fatality rate among those who hike by themselves. So my first general piece of recommendation is hike with a partner who can help you out. And even if both of you get lost, you can provide a a lot of human uh, comfort uh, to each other. And usually two minds are better than one. Only has Dr. Kessler not studied the behavior of blind people when we get lost, but neither has anyone else. There also is no research on what we should do if we are lost. Something that may happen to many of us fairly often, but we're not called search and rescue lost. But there are some people who do teach their students how to find their way home or to where they want to be. Unless you are abducted by aliens and dropped in a strange place because the aliens couldn't digest you, you have some idea of where you are. One of the things that I often teach is that if you become disoriented with a cane, you're often 20 or 25 feet from where you want to be. When you become disoriented with a dog, you're often a block away because the travel speeds are relatively different. People in general, and this is a gross generalization, so don't take it as gospel, it's not intended to be. In general, people travel more slowly with a cane than they do with a guide dog in the same situation. That's Lucas Frank from the CNI Guide Dog Center Morristown, New Jersey. The first thing we can do if we're not sure where we are is use technology, but it doesn't always work. When you become disoriented, there are several things that you can do to take to to help yourself regain orientation. One of the biggest things is traffic noise. One of the primary things that people are taught when they're learning to travel, uh, if they're visually impaired, is if they become disoriented, reference the line of traffic. If you're further away from it than you ought to be, work yourself back towards it because it will help you reestablish your position. In the daytime, when the sun's shining, you can use cardinal directions. For example, if the sun's shining on your face in the afternoon, you're going west. If it's shining on your back, you're going east. Sometimes I get lost at night when there may not be much traffic. No traffic, that becomes more difficult, but other things may play a role including, for example, winds. Often evenings are breezier uh, and there may be a prevailing wind that you can work off and you have the dogs work and you still have traffic sound. All those things still exist, but you're right. It becomes much harder, no doubt about it. And then, you know, you can always follow a lifeline as, as, as they say, if you need to. But if you follow your fundamentals of working with your dog or your cane, you're going to be safe. You also can use two apps for help. Ira a paid service which is free for five minutes a day. An IRA agent uses the camera on your phone to guide you. The agent also knows where you're at on a map. And you can use Be My Eyes, where an excited volunteer somewhere in the world uses the camera on your phone to tell you what's around you. If you're getting information from IRA, Be My Eyes, or a friend on FaceTime, and they're talking to you through your headphones, Lucas has an additional suggestion. If you use headphones, you're best off using a bone conduction set that doesn't block the uh, opening to your ear canal. 
Lucas says, it's not a good idea to say home to your guide dog, even though it might work sometimes. Would it ever happen, If particularly if it was dinner time? Yes, it likely would. But in, in terms of proper guide dog handling technique, as I think you know, that's not how it works. Uh -huh. But I can tell you stories about people who have become disoriented in snowstorms, for example, and they had no idea where they were, and then all of a sudden they put their hand out and it was on their doorknob. The dog just did it and got them there because the dog knew that that's where they wanted to go. Exactly what happened on the way, they're not sure. But so the way it should work is that you should give the dog commands at every block in terms of when to cross, what direction to go, and so on and so forth. And no, you should not say, let's go home, and the dog just takes you there. If there are people around, ask them for help. Gary Wonder is the editor of the Braille Monitor this signature publication of the National Federation of the Blind. He has an interesting philosophy. Being lost occasionally is just part of being blind. The first thing I had to do was get rid of the psychological baggage that went along with the word lost. Because when I was a kid, I was afraid of being lost. I saw these I saw these movies where somebody's in a jungle and they get lost, and that means that they get eaten by tigers or they muddle their way into quicksand and they're buried alive as they struggle to breathe. I, I think another thing that happens with blind people is that for a long time, our getting around is somebody else's responsibility. You know, hold your brother's hand, hang on to me. And so at some point, I became pretty passive about where I was and where I needed to be. And I had to really work at figuring out that my mobility was really my responsibility. Being lost is a little like occasionally having a Charlie horse. You just work your way through it. In 1993, District Court Judge Ruth Ann Brandy Polidori was presiding over a divorce case. The wife had gone blind from diabetes. She was trying to get maintenance, which we call alimony. Her husband's attorney was trying to prevent his client from paying alimony. While cross-examining the woman about her monthly expenses, he noticed that she included a $35 monthly expense for renting a bicycle. He pounced on her sarcastically, asking her, what do you need a bicycle for? You're blind. The judge felt that the attorney was unfeeling and harsh, and the woman's answer got the judge's attention when she said that just because she lost her sight didn't mean that she still didn't want to enjoy things in life, like riding a bicycle, and that she had found a bicycle shop that rented tandem bicycles, and she hoped that she'd be able to ride on the back of a tandem at least once a month. Judge Polidori was so impressed, she decided to donate a tandem bicycle to a cycling club or a blind organization, but no one wanted it. Then when reading a Sunday supplement to the Denver Post, she came across an article about a blind organization in California giving blind people an opportunity to ride on the back of tandem bicycles. 
She asked if they had a Colorado chapter. They said, no, but you could start one. So with some friends, she founded iCycle Colorado. And with an anonymous donation of $10,000, they bought six bicycles built for two. And things began to roll in 1994 and are still going strong with sighted captains in the front seat, steering, shifting gears, and helping pedal and braking and describing their surroundings and telling the stoker in the back seat when to pedal and to brake, lean into turns and put their foot down when they stop. Meanwhile, the California iCycle group has long been disbanded, but the two really big blind tandem cycling groups have taken its place. Both help blind cyclists and potential blind cyclists get behind the driver's seat, one in California and another in Israel. Both also started by sighted cyclists. The Blind Stokers Club, based in San Diego, California, was started by Dave White. The Blind Stokers Club was started in 2005 as a way to enable the sport of recreational cycling for those who can't see well enough to pilot a bike. The Blind Stokers Club is a lot of bike clubs with an extra twist. Uh, half of our members uh, can't see, and to enable cycling, we ride tandem bikes for two. Even if you don't live near San Diego, you still can get stoked about becoming a stoker. Yeah, the Blind Stokers Club has a, has a roster of over 140 members in San Diego and also a membership uh, th throughout the country and even outside the United States. Go to blindstokerclub.org for more information. 7,600 miles south of San Diego in Israel, no, is Canvalo, a blind cycling club near Tel Aviv, a tandem cycling club near Tel Aviv, serving blind stokers in Israel, started by Modi Regid. He was motivated when visiting an Israeli guide dog center for the blind. I entered the guide center and saw a tandem bike leaning against the wall. I asked them, what are you doing with this bike? Well, sometimes we uh, take our, tand our blind people for a ride. So we uh, decided to establish a, a professional tandem bike team. This happened about in the summer of 2006. Now we're 16 years into this program. And we have uh, 12 teams all around the country. Uh, about 250 bikers. Uh, we participate in uh, races and we organize uh, events for all the teams together. When we arrange uh, an event, it's about uh, 80 to 90 tandems that uh, take part together. This is very unusual in the tandem uh, in the tandem branch all around the, the, the world. I don't think many countries have this volume of activity in tandem bikes with blind people. Cam Velo is spelled C-A-N 
V E L O. You know, you remember the slogan of uh, of President Obama? Yes, we can. So he copied it from us. <laughs> we started with can. Uh, yes, we can. And uh, it's can and velo. Velo is bicycle. But in Hebrew, it also has a meaning of can uh, means uh, yes and uh, no. Velo means no. Means yes and no. People who see and people who don't see. Modi says. Riding a tandem for a blind stoker is a very sharing experience. It's a tool, and we meet together and we do things together. Some we have about twenty-five thousand people. People in Israel legally blind. Not many uh, ride bicycles. Enjoy the outside. Enjoy nature. Enjoy the speed. Enjoy the wind. Enjoy the sun. Knowing the country, biking uh, on tandem bike is is an excellent tool for for going outside, developing your independence and the trust and uh, your relationship in the community and feeling and competing against people who are not blind and winning many times it's a very efficient tool for self confidence for independence rehabilitation for all the good things in life when you come to Israel you have tandem bike for you and of course you come and visit the guide dog center we have fun together send people over send people over all three tandem cycling clubs teach sighted team members How to be captains to their future blind stokers before they're allowed to take control of a bike? Alex Nutt owns MTB Tandems in the Atlanta, Georgia suburb of Woodstock. He builds more custom-made tandem bikes than anyone else in the United States, and is competitive for the most in the world. He specializes in tandem mountain bikes. Alex says. Typical tandem owners are couples, usually married men and women, or boy and girlfriend. That's not the case. Blind riders much higher chance of being male to start with. There's a higher chance they're going to be a larger person. If you're buying your old tandem, you can find road tandems on the internet for under a thousand dollars, but they won't be designed for women captains. If you want a tandem. For blind mountain bikers, Alex says, expect to spend a lot more. Hardtails, um, which is a, just a front suspension mountain bike, start just under five thousand. Most of the tandems that we build and sell are typically in the seven thousand range. And you know, if somebody wants full carbon fiber couplers and the whole shebang, we've sold them and built them up to fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars. But that's not that. Normal. Fortunately, all of the Blind Stokers Club will have captains with tandem bikes. There are two databases of people who own tandems who would like to help you stoke the Blind Stokers Club, and a database created by Christine Tinberg. I'm the founder and the director of Bicycling Blind. Also known as the U.S. Blind Tandem Cycling Connection, we are a nonprofit organization, and we work to connect the sighted bicycling community with the visually impaired community, so that they can ride tandem bicycles together anywhere in the country. We have a website, and the address is bicyclingblind.org. 
and that's spelled B-I-C-Y-C-L-I-N-G-B-L-I-N-D.org. And you can create a profile on our website. It's free, and you can search for a sighted bicyclist using your zip code and choosing how many miles nearby you want to look for somebody within. Kelly Dixon from Challenge Aspen and Challenge Aspen and Lorraine Hutchinson helped with this story. That's my talking scale. Reminding us that we'd like you to weigh in on how we're doing. Please send us an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. We spell traveler the American way with one L. We'd also like to hear your story ideas from all over the world. Please send us an email with story ideas in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. If you'd like to help underwrite this program, please send us an email with underwriting in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. Transcripts of this program are also available by searching the tactile traveler in any search engine. This program is also being broadcast on the Audio Information Network of Colorado and in additional states. We'd like to thank the following organizations and people who helped make today's program possible. Microsoft Accessibility Tech Support. Apple Accessibility Tech Support. Leslie Steffens, Pat Conroe, Lorraine Hutchinson, Debbie O'Leary, Sarah Williams, Sophia Williams, Kaylee Romero, and Wally Burley. This has been the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. This has been a production of KDNK Community Access Radio, Carbondale, Colorado.